John chapter 9. Believe it or not, we're done with chapter 8. I love chapter 8. Moving right along. Just by way of reminder, the the structure of John, just because you see what's happening here. Remember, John's gospel is structured around the number 7. There's a whole lot of 7s. I won't go into all of those. I gave it to you before. But just for the sake of today, John's gospel is structured around seven signs, seven major miracles. Jesus did lots of miracles, but there's seven major miracles that his, his, his gospel is structured around. First, when we turn to water into wine, the healing of the, of the son with the fever, the healing of the man lame 38 years, then the feeding of the 5,000, then he, when he walked on the sea and calmed the sea. The one we have today, the healing of this blind man, and then there's one more, the raising of Lazarus. Seven major signs. Now, the reason they point that out is because structured around these seven major signs are seven long discourses of Jesus. John contains more of the words of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. And he has seven major speeches of Jesus, discussions of Jesus, as we've already seen. Remember when Nicodemus came at night, John chapter 3, that's, that's the first one. Then after he healed the man lame for 38 years, chapter 5 is all a discussion with the Pharisees, more like an argument. After he feeds the 5,000, remember he goes up on a mountain and he goes to Capernaum, and, and all, half of chapter 5 and almost all of chapter 6 is this long discourse of Jesus, this talking with the crowds, which ends up with most of them getting disgusted and leaving him. Then at the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've seen, that's chapter 7, a good part of chapter 8, a long discussion with the Pharisees. After he heals, sorry, after he forgives the adulterous woman, all the rest of chapter 8, he's discussing with the Pharisees. That was a long discourse. There's one now, after chapter 9, after Jesus heals this blind man, chapter 10 is a long, end of chapter 9 into chapter 10 is this long discourse of Jesus discussing how he's the good shepherd compared to the evil shepherds of Israel. And of course, the seventh discourse is during the, the Passover. That's the long one. That goes from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 17. So there's seven major sections of discourse and seven major signs. This is the sixth one, chapter 9. This is going to lead to the sixth major discourse. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Just stop there. Have your sheet there. There's a televangelist named Creflo Dollar. Did any televangelist ever have a better name than that? <laughs> this guy asked for money all the time. He's, he's, he's a fake, fake healer, charlatan, huckster, Creflo Dollar. But he said this, one of many things he said, sickness is not the will of God. Healing and health are the will of God. I, could give you, I was going to give you many, many verses. I, I don't want to take up time with these guys. All these guys, Benny Hinn and... and Kenneth Copeland, all these guys, that God never wants anyone sick. God never makes anyone sick. That guy that's on the radio every Sunday here in Pottsville, it's never God's will for you to be sick. God never sends trials your way. God never does anything evil to anyone. That's the devil, and you have power over the devil. That, that's, the, that's the prosperity gospel. It's huge in the charismatic church. It's enormous in South America, in Africa, even going through Asia. It's huge here in America. These guys rake in millions. Some of these guys are billionaires. But it's this whole idea that God, God's purpose, God's will is for you to be happy, for you to be healthy, for you to be prosperous. There's a large segment of the modern charismatic movement that teaches that it's never God's will for anyone to be sick, that he never sends diversity or trials, and if you have enough faith and obedience, usually means by sending them money, 
You'll never be sick and always be prosperous. It's called a prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it, that kind of thing. It's huge. It's enormous. And it's growing by leaps and bounds in the world today. We read here in John 9, verse 1. It says, as he passed by. It says, as he passed by. This is probably just after the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus was just at. He's still in Jerusalem. We know that because when he heals this guy, he sends him to the Pool of Siloam, which is right there in Jerusalem, right by the temple. So he's near the temple. He's still in Jerusalem. This is probably right after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended. He's still there. This is probably huge crowds. This is still about six months before the crucifixion. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in September. He'll be crucified next April. So it's about six months, five months before that. They don't give a time frame here. We don't, we're not told how old this guy is, but he's called a man. He's not a child. He's a man. He's grown up, blind from birth. Now, the temple was a favorite place for beggars because... The temple was full of beggars because that's where people, there's large crowds came to the temple. It's a great place to be. A lot of people pass by. The disciples, this guy may have been there many times. We're not told here how they know he's blind from birth, but probably they knew this guy or knew of this guy. Maybe he told them that. Maybe he's there begging, please help me. I've been blind from birth. We don't know. Don't know what, how they know this. And again, as you know where this goes, verse 14 tells us this takes place on the Sabbath. So you know there's trouble coming. That's the setup. And let's try to imagine. Whenever I see a blind person, my heart goes out to them, doesn't it? What must it be like to never have seen? To be blind from the moment you're born? I can't imagine that. You've never seen anything. You can't see. In our culture especially, he's, he's in for a hard life. What are his parents going to go through all these years with this blind son? He is reduced to begging. What can you do? They didn't have social programs back. They didn't care. They didn't have welfare and Medicare and all that disability. If you, you, you were reduced to begging. And here he is in the temple, blind, begging. Probably every day, he, wherever he lived, he'd make his way there and sit at the same spot and just beg. That's how he made his living. Just as Jesus just happened to passing by with his disciples, with this guy who was there. He's probably there many, many days. He's, he's probably a common sight there in the temple. But notice verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he'd be born blind? They asked a common but mistaken spiritual assumption. Common think what they said. Who sinned? This guy's this guy born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? It was a common belief among the Jews, the rabbis, most of them all taught this, that physical calamity was evidence of some kind of God's judgment. If you were blind or if you broke your leg or if, you, if something terrible happens to you, that means God's punishing you for something. Remember Job's three friends? Mm-hmm. That was a common assumption among the Jews. It's not, not, not only the Jews, that's a common assumption almost everywhere. Something terrible happens to you, you just assume God's punishing you. God's after you. And they assumed that. This guy, their sin caused this. A, a, direct, a direct judgment of God against this man or his, or his family's sin. Now, it's true. All suffering in general is the result of sin. It all is. There would be no suffering. There would be no disease if mankind had never sinned. Had Adam not sinned, he and his children would have lived forever in in perfection, without sin, without death, without calamity. But that's not how it worked out. Romans Romans 5, Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and notice this, so death spread to all men because all sin. When Adam sinned, the entire human race within him fell. The whole earth fell. The universe fell into sin and decay and corruption and death. 
Turn back to Luke, Luke chapter 13. Jesus speaks of this. Luke chapter 13. I'm sure you know this, but it's good to look at it in this context. They're talking about current events. And Jesus puts a, a, an angle on it they would probably never have considered. Luke 13, look at verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. What he talks about there is Pilate, in retaliation for the Jews' rebellion, he had his soldiers dress up in robes looking like Jews. So inside the temple, they're all meeting to worship, and all of a sudden these soldiers threw off their robes, pulled out their swords, and started killing Galileans. Right in the temple, at random, just killing people as a retaliation for something the Galileans had done previously. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because of they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Imagine, uh, it's so common today, some guy walks into a grocery store and starts shooting, killing people at random. Jesus would say, do you think those people who died were worse sinners than those who weren't shot? He said, no, you all will perish unless you repent. This tower in Siloam, it's not recorded in Scripture, apparently it fell and killed 18 people. Imagine that, you're just walking down the street and bang, this building falls on and you're dead. And Jews were saying, boy, God must have been judging them. Jesus says, no, unless you repent, you're all going to perish. You're all under the curse of sin. These things happen to everybody. The disciples here are raising a false dilemma. They only give two possibilities. Who sinned? This guy or his parents? It's a little strange. How could he sin if he's born blind? Did he sin in the womb? That's not as strange as you might think. Rabbis taught that, say, if the mother who was pregnant did something seriously wicked, like go to a pagan temple or murder somebody, or, or if this baby's father did. Rabbis taught that child is sinning too. It's a dumb thing, but they did teach that. They may be referring to that. They don't, they don't know. But how could this guy's sin have caused this? Don't know, but that was a common teaching. He said, or his parents. They're assuming somebody in this family must have done something awful that this has happened to this child, to this, to this man. Now, the consequences, consequences of evil done by parents are often experienced by the child. When parents, we see this all the time. A mother fools around with drugs, or child's born blind, or crippled, or lame, or whatever. A, parent, a mother drinks, or smokes, or whatever, and their children, or a father is an alcoholic, or whatever he is, and his, parent, his children are born into poverty. Often, children do suffer for the sins of their parents. Think of all those, think of when, when, when Israel came to the promised land and didn't have enough faith to go in, and God said, now you're going to wander the desert for 40 years. Don't you pity their children? Their children suffered for those parents' sin. They had to wander with them for 40 years so they grew up. Think of when Israel, we discovered this on Wednesday night, when Israel split into two nations, all those children in the northern nations suffering because of the foolishness of their parents. Or when the Babylonian captivity happened because of Israel's sin. Many, many children were taken into Babylon. It wasn't their fault. It was their parents' fault. Many children were born in Babylon because of the sins of their parents. Someone has said sin travels downstream. When parents sin, it often 
the consequences of that sin can pass on to the children for many generations. It's a, it's a sad thing. But Scripture is clear. God does never attribute the guilt of the parents to the children. Never. Scripture's clear, and I gave you some verses there. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You do not put the guilt of a father onto the child, or vice versa. Ezekiel 18, 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. When I stand before God, I will not answer for my father's sins. That's a good thing. Your children will not answer for your sins. God will not hold me guilty for what my father or mother did. I will not become guilty for anything my parents did. I may suffer because of the way they lived, but I will never become guilty because of what they did. The guilt... The sinful guilt before God never passes on. So these disciples have basically joined Job's three miserable counselors. Remember Job said, miserable counselors are you all. Job's three friends show up. Say, Job, it's obvious. You're being punished by God because you're a sinner. They were dead wrong. They assumed the same thing. These disciples basically have that same view. This, this man, there's somewhere sin in this guy's past that, that brought this on. But note what Jesus said. This is profound. We're going to stop right here in verse 3. This is a lot to talk about here. Jesus answered, It was neither that man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works, plural, of God might be displayed in him. That's a profound truth. Remember, Jesus is saying this. Read your Bibles carefully. This goes against a whole lot of, of modern, quote, Christian thinking. Let's get what he said here. He says, No, you're wrong. There's a third option that you haven't considered. Jesus reveals that this terrible tragedy, and it is. Think what his parents must have gone through. Think what this guy's gone through up to this point. This terrible tragedy is not God punishing him. It's God using him. Now, again, only God could know that. Only, only an omniscient one could know the reason behind this. You look at a blind man, you can't tell what happened, but Jesus knows. But, no, but get this now. Get what he's saying here. This plain statement of Jesus is that God sovereignly chose that this man would be blind from birth, notice what he says in verse 3, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God sovereignly determined that this man would be born blind just so on this day God could use him as a grand demonstration of how God works. Can you believe that? Can you get your mind around that? There's a lot of Christians that say, that can't be, that's not fair. God would never, my God would never do that. Is that what it says? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. The purpose for all of his family's suffering was for this moment and what's going to follow after this. Do you think Jesus met this guy by accident? There's a reason he's here. There's a reason this guy's here the same day Jesus is here. There's a lot going to come from this. We're going to talk about that in a second. But he's saying very clearly, no, guys, you're wrong. It's not that his parents sinned. It's not that he sinned. God's not punishing him. God has plans to use his blindness to display his works. It's no surprise this guy's here. It's just this, on this particular day, Jesus stops and you and the disciples ask, and it goes on from there. So how then 
are the works of God displayed in this guy? What's he talking about in this? Well, I broke some things down in your sheet. Remember, Jesus is going to heal this guy miraculously. Absolutely, instantly, as soon as he washes the mud out of his eyes, he comes back seeing, it says. Instantly, permanently, totally healed. Imagine how that feels. You're blind from birth. This weird guy walks up to you and, and just spits on the ground, makes some mud, rubs it in your eyes and says, now go wash that off. And the moment you do, you can see perfectly, 2020. Can you imagine that? How that would feel for the first time. Imagine being blind and all of a sudden now I can see perfectly. Man, you would leap for joy. And first thing you want to know is what? Who did this? Who did this? So how then are the works of God? How does this work out? I have a sheet there. First of all, remember back in 8.12, Jesus publicly declared at the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall, shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. In other words, I am the source of true spiritual light. You're all walking in darkness. If you come to me, you will have light. And I'll notice here in verse nine, uh, verse 5. He says it again, but note the context. 9 verse 5. Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay out of the spittle, applied the clay to his eyes, said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. He went away, washed, and came back seeing. Literally sighted. Jesus says again, I am the light of the world. Watch this. And he heals this guy. He demonstrates, I am the light of the world by bringing sight to this guy born blind. Now, a lot of Jesus' miracles were meant to teach a lesson. This is one of them. He's demonstrating what he is by healing this guy. And a lot more comes out of this. Secondly, the result of this man being healed is that people take him to the Pharisees. Check this guy out. What's going on here? And again, for, for, from chapter uh, verse 39 through 41, the Pharisees go crazy over this. Who did this? On the Sabbath, who did this? We don't know this man. Who do you think this guy is? Who do you think you are? They bring his parents in. They don't believe him. The parents say this is really him. The Pharisees, we get a, we get a clear demonstration because of this of who the Pharisees are. They're wicked they're harsh. They treat this guy awful. They end up kicking him out of the synagogue. That means more than just throw him out the door. That means you're, you're no longer allowed to worship in any of the synagogues. You're, you're banned from the religion of Israel. They kick him out. It's demonstrating that they are spiritually blind. This man's sight demonstrates how blind the Pharisees are. Then Jesus will show up at the end of this chapter and tell them, you guys are blind. You're not saying we're blind, are you? He says, yes, you are. Because you think you see, you're blind. You've been blinded by the light. Now you hear that song, right? <laughs> the light has come and it's blinded you. It opened up this guy's eyes and it's blinded you. And then as a result of that, we have the start of this fourth, I'm sorry, the sixth discourse. That Someone has said, if we lost our entire Bible and all you had left was Romans 8. That's also true about John 10. If you lost your entire Bible and all you have is John 10, you get along just fine. This beautiful discourse comes out of this. Because of this guy's healing, because of the awful way the Pharisees treat him and Jesus pronounces them blind, they are the wicked shepherds of Israel. Jesus then all through all of chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. Let me tell you why. Because I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I gather my sheep, I lead my sheep, I protect my sheep, I give my sheep eternal life, they shall never perish, I am the good shepherd. This is all set up, again, to display who Jesus is. They're given this platform, as it were, to be the good shepherd, in contrast to the false shepherds. And also, think of this. This guy suffered, I'm sure, harsh. It was a hard life for him. Blind since birth, a beggar. As a result of all of this, this poor, begging, blind man now sees, and he is sought out by the Son of Man. It says, Jesus afterwards finds him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He goes, show me him and I'll believe. And Jesus says, that's me. Jesus seeks him out, reveals himself to him as the Messiah, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7. It says, the man believed and worshipped. I believe he fell to his knees. My Lord, my God. Think of it. Think what happened to this guy. Now, do you think if you'd interview him on the street? Bring up the microphone. Do you regret being born blind? Oh, no. Look what it resulted in. Do you think he regretted this? I guarantee you he did. In fact, this is a theme of the Gospel of John. I have a sheet there. John said this. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. This is a grand demonstration of that. This poor beggar entered the kingdom of God that day. He met the Messiah. Even though the Jews threw him out, condemned him, you are, you are born in sin, we hate people like you. Jesus said, I'm the son of man, I'm here for you. And he, he, he believes and worships the son of God. His whole life has changed for the better. It was all, he would tell you it was all worth it. If you could ask him, would you rather not have this happen and had your sight all these years? Oh no, if my blindness led me to meet my Messiah, it was well worth it. I'm sure he'd tell you that. You have to ask him one day. Now think about this. You've got to wrap your head around this. Many today think that God's sole purpose is to make you happy. There's many go to church thinking God's, I'm here because I want God to make me happy. I want God to make me prosperous. I want, you hear this all the time. God wants to fulfill your dreams. That's Joel, that Osteen. Dream big because God wants to fulfill your dreams. Does he? No. Is God's primary concern your happiness? Now, in an ultimate sense, if you're in, if you're in Christ, if you're saved, God has stored up for you happiness you can't begin to imagine. When we cross over into eternity, you're going, to, you're going to be more happy than it could possibly be described. That's part of the atonement. But I'm saying temporal right now on, our, on this earth. Is God's chief concern keeping you happy? Good marriage, plenty of money, healthy, no, no trouble. You hear many in the church today saying just that. That's what God wants for you. I could have given you quote after quote after quote of all these, these televangelists who say the exact opposite of what I'm about to tell you here and what you already know. Think about this. Contrary to what a large section of the modern church is saying, it is often God's will that people suffer. Okay, I don't want to pick at this guy too, but the guy is on, on the radio Sunday mornings. He says almost every week, it is never God's will that you suffer. God never sends trials your way. James 1, 2 must be a lie. God never brings affliction upon his people. That's always and only Satan doing that. And since you have power over Satan, you can stop all that. That's, that's not only bad theology, it's a horrible lie. Just a quick example, and you know all this. It's a reminder. 
Consider the life of Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Joseph was one of Jacob's sons. Remember what happened to him? Mm-hmm. But at the end of it all, remember what he said. It's on your sheet there. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What did God mean for good? The word meant there has a word, thought of an intention. God intended this for good. Intended what? Evil. His brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him. They threw him into a pit. They were going to leave him there to die. Then they sold him in slavery to the pagan Midianites who carried him off to Egypt and sold him in slavery in Egypt. He was betrayed by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused, ends up in jail, gets forgotten in jail. This goes on for years and years and years. Now, if you didn't know how this ends, if you were, you'd think, boy, Joseph, you're cursed. You're cursed. Look, everything's going wrong for this guy. Think of all the, all, all the sufferings of Joseph. Who did that? God did. Because Joseph says here, God sent me ahead of you. How did he do that? You you would hope God would have bought him a bus ticket and said, go down there and wait for your brothers. He sent them by way of cruelty, hatred, slavery, oppression for years. That's how God sent him. Of course, it worked out good in the end, as we know. Number two there. Remember at at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And what does Jesus do? Sure, Satan, go ahead. I give you permission. Jesus gave Satan permission to take Peter apart. And why would he do that? Remember like Job. Satan came to about Job. I want to, I want to get him. God said, go ahead, have at him. Well, it was something good for Peter. Peter needed this. And we see in John chapter 20 and 21 how Peter is restored because of all of this. And if you read Peter's two letters, his heart certainly changed in a lot of ways. But understand that Jesus gave Satan permission to take Peter out that night. Peter blasphemed and denied his Savior. God sent Paul, or Paul says, that because of how, to keep you from getting proud, a satanic thorn in the flesh. Who sent that to him? God did. God sent some kind of satanic something to keep Paul from becoming proud because of all the visions he saw. Is that right? Can God do that? Yeah. Would you want that to happen to you? I wouldn't. No. But God knows what he's doing. And of course, the ultimate one. We could go on many of these. All the sufferings of Christ. Think of all the beatings and the kickings and the spitting and the pulling of the beard and the punching in the face and the, the flogging and the crucifixion. All of that was predetermined, predestined by God to happen. As Isaiah says, it pleased him to crush him, putting him to grief. If God would do that to his own son. I have a quote. This is hanging on a bowling bar. I just took it down. One of my quotes I have. Elizabeth Elliot said, Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself by protecting us from all suffering. We think that God, well, if God, if you loved me, you'd make sure I never suffer. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. And that's understandable. I don't want trouble. I like to have plenty of food, plenty of money, plenty of ease. I like to have sunshine, lollipops here. That's something, all right? All day long. I'd like to have all that stuff. Wouldn't you? If, if I were running things, that's what I'd do. Wouldn't you? But I'm not running things. God is. And that's, that's usually not what we really need in this day and age. 
That brings us up to number five. I put together a long list many years ago, and I called it the God of sickness, calamity, suffering, and death. That's why your outlines are longer, because a lot of verses on here. There's a side of God many people never talk about. It's not above, it's not beneath him to afflict his own people. God kills all the time. God brings disease. God causes earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and, and all that stuff. God does all of this. The Bible's very clear. See? That's when we will pardon the most. Yeah. As, we, as, as you said to many, when do you pray the most sincerely? When you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. How would you ever learn endurance if everything was sunshine and roses? How would, how, would, how would you ever learn faithfulness? How would you ever learn the steadfastness? How would you ever compassion for the hurting? How would you ever learn his character? Exactly right. How would you? How would you? It, in this fallen world, it, one of the best ways we learn spirituality is through suffering, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And as Hebrew, if the Son of God had learned obedience through suffering, how do you think we're going to get off? We need it more than he did. Let's talk through it. Just, I just put some categories here together. Just some scriptures. This is going to be a, a scripture Bible study. God does send sickness. Creflo Dollar, I love that name, is wrong. It is sometimes God's will that you get sick. God sometimes sends those sicknesses. Now, again, we can abuse our bodies and we can sin. If I do drugs and alcohol and eat badly and all this other stuff, I, I, I can get sick. God has built us into the physical world. Sickness is a lot of times our own stupid fault. Yet God does use that. But God also sometimes sends disease. Some verses. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever inflammation and fiery heat. I'm going to strike you with some kind of disease that causes intense fever. Deuteronomy 28, 39. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. Does that sound like the God you know? 1 Chronicles 21, 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. God sent some kind of disease that swept through the camp like a deadly COVID, and 70,000 Israelites died. God did that. God did that. Realize that? Who do you think controls germs? Even man-made viruses. Who do you think controls those? They're all at his beck and call. 1 Corinthians 11.30. We're going to have communion today. And Paul warns them in that chapter, because many, it sounds like the rich were taking advantage, coming in early, eating all the food, getting drunk. So the poor laborers, when they're done working, came in, there was no food left. And Paul says, you're being very unloving. You're being very unconcerning about your brother. This this is no way to act at the Lord's table. Remember what he says there? This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. These are probably Christians. God looked down on this Corinthian church and saw how these rich and the, and the, the wealthy were abusing their, their brethren, unloving, selfish. And God said many of them were sick because of this, and some of them actually died in the church. God punished these Christians with sickness and death. Revelation 2. In this church, there was a, apparently a woman... It, it calls her Jezebel. It probably wasn't her name, but she's like Jezebel. She was doing something immoral in this church. And God says this. I gave, Jesus says this. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. She's going to get very sick very soon. 
I'm sending sickness her way. It is God's will many times that you get sick. It's not always just your own doing or some random act of some, some germ got a hold of you. God is sovereign. Look at the next one. Physical disabilities. This man was born blind. He was born handicapped. Who decided that? Well, Exodus 4. Remember Moses is before the burning bush and God says, I'm going to send you to speak to Pharaoh. Remember Moses says, Lord, I stutter. I stutter, Lord. Remember what God's response was? The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Lord, I stutter. Yeah, I know, Moses, I made you that way. Can you handle that? Physical handicaps, mental handicaps. The Lord says, I do this. Understand, if, if man had never fallen in sin, there'd never be any kind of physical or mental handicaps. It's because of sin this is here. But God, who is sovereign over all things, now uses all of that to accomplish his purposes. And he says here in no uncertain terms, who makes someone born to be mute or deaf or blind? Do not I, the Lord, do this? Can you handle that? There's a lot of, there's a lot of people in church today who would say, I can't believe that. I can't believe God would ever do that. The Bible says he does. That's who he is. Drought, famine, earthquakes, what we call natural disasters, are they really just random events? Well, the Bible says otherwise. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will strike you with drought and with blight and with mildew. I'll send a drought upon you. All your crops are going to rot. Blight and mildew is going to be everywhere. Think of it. Haggai 111. I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. I'm going to make it stop raining. And everything's going to die. God does that. Think of that. Who controls the flies and the frogs and the gnats and the thunder and the hail? Who, who controls all that? God does. Psalm 105, 16. He called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. There he's talking about what happened in Egypt. God wiped out their entire food supply. Isaiah 29, 6. You'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, loud noise, storm, tempest, and a flame of consuming fire. Ezekiel 38, 19. I swear in my zeal and fiery rage, on that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Are earthquakes random? No, they're not. They are not. Now, we can't always understand why, why here, why there, why not here. Well, they just had a massive earthquake in Afghanistan. Thousands have died. Look at the weather. You've got to remember it. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. Whenever you complain about the weather, you're complaining about God's choices. Yep. Yeah. It's going to get stinking hot and humid today. But understand, who, who could, again, a great verse. This is only one of many verses I could have given from Job 37. He saturates clouds with moisture. Notice. He scatters his lightning through them. They swirl about, turning round and round, notice, at his direction. The clouds go where he sends them, accomplishing everything he commands them over the surface of the inhabitants. We're going to stop there. God fills the clouds with water and lightning, and then he sends them where he chooses. But notice the next sentence. He causes this to happen for punishment, for his land, or for his faithful love. 
God will send rain over an area because he wants to bless that land. God will withhold rain somewhere else because he's punishing somebody. Or vice versa. It's all, it's all at his doing. Storms that destroy all this stuff. God does this. The gentle rains you get that restore everything. That's God. It says God's loving kindness is faithful love. He controls the weather. Calamity. Judges 2.15. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. Every time they went to battle, they lost. They got decimated. Calamity. Who, who brings success? Well, God does. Who brings calamity? You make your plans, you do all this and that, and it ends in disaster. God's sovereign over all of that. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. When you have, when anything goes well for you, when your car starts in the morning, you say, thank you, Lord. Anything, yeah, any plans you do, anything that works out well, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I make success. If your business venture, go, if your stocks go up, whatever. I, the Lord, did that. But don't forget the other side of that. I also create disaster. When things fall apart, when the stock market crashes, when you get a nasty, awful government, when your car doesn't start, who's in charge of all that? It's not random. If God, God sends disaster on people all the time. And, of course, the big one, death. That preacher Sunday morning in Pottsville here says, God never killed anyone. Death is Satan's work. I beg to differ. Genesis 38.7. Now, Ur... Judah's firstborn was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Judah had a son who was so wicked, devout, God just killed him. We don't know how he did it. Heart attack, stroke, fell off a cliff, disease. God just took him. He's too wicked to live. God couldn't stand and look at him. God just took him out. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I alone am he. There's no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. Is that your understanding of God? You're born at his command. Do you realize that? I know you do. You die at his command. He's, he's already chosen the day of your death and how it's going to come about. It's already set up. God says, I do this. Life and death are in the hand of God. Amos 4.10 I send plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. Along with your captured horses, I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent war to you. I caused your men to die by the sword and dead bodies lying in the streets stinking. I did that as punishment. And you still don't turn back to me, God says. Think of it. God sends one nation against another and back and forth. And again, that verse we just saw in 1 Corinthians 11, because of the, their, their abuse of the communion table and, and their, their lack of love for their poorer brethren, God says, this is what, Paul says, this is why many are sick and ill and many have fallen asleep. Several in that church have died. God took them out because of their wickedness. Think of that. It's possible as a Christian to so annoy God by your wickedness, by your lack of love, by your bad attitudes, that God may decide, you know what, 
I've had enough of you. You're coming home. Can he do that? Of course he can. He's God. There's many, many more that I could give you, but you get the point, don't you? Jesus said here in John 9, 2, this man was born blind for this sole purpose that at this very moment God might show his glorious works in this man. When Jesus heals this man, great things happen for him and for the whole community. God can do that. He has a right to do that. Now again, if mankind had never fallen into sin, if Adam had never sinned, sickness, disease, calamity, and death would never have existed. But now that it has happened, God, who is sovereign over all, uses sickness, calamity, death, as he sees fit. He's in charge of it all. He does it all. It's just, it's just who he is. I condensed this from Ephesians 1. Pastor Paul's been preaching through there for the last couple of weeks. Just all the references here. That God does everything only as it pleases him. Ephesians 1, I just condensed this greatly. By God's will, according to his favor and will, with all wisdom and understanding, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned, according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, everything works according to God's will. No exceptions. This man born blind, you could say, what an awful tragedy. Oh, I feel so sorry for him. I feel so sorry for his parents. He suffered all these years, and he did. Blindness is not a good thing. It's an awful thing. It's a curse. But God ordained this to elevate his son. And that's the point. And to bring great blessings to this man and to many others because of it. To quote Pastor Paul, sort of, God has the sovereign right to do whatever he wants, with whomever he wills, whenever he wants, in any way he wants. If God wants to make me a millionaire, I give him permission. He doesn't need my permission. If God wants to have me end up in a jail cell and get beheaded, that's his will. He does whatever he wants, whatever he sees is best. And what does he see? Is, what's, what's God's guiding principle? I said, many of these charismatics and people in churches say, well, God's, God's guiding principles. He wants to make you happy and healthy, wealthy and, and, and at peace. That's not so. Here's God's guiding principle. On your sheet there. Everything God does, God's ultimate purpose in everything. This, this man was born blind to glorify God and to elevate his son, Jesus Christ. And everything that happens has that purpose in mind. If you understand that, Things, even though you don't understand all the small details, you, you'll see the big picture. I gave you some verses, and you know this. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment. What, what, what is God's good pleasure? What does God plan to do? What, how's this all going to end up? Notice, to bring everything together in the Messiah. Everything both things in heaven and things on earth. God has planned, however all of this works out, all of human history, it's all going to bring everything together in Christ. When it's all said and done, it's all going to glorify him. It's all always about him. If I prosper, if God prospers my ways because he's elevating his son, if God brings suffering and sickness or calamity into my life, it's because somehow that's going to glorify his son. Philippians 2, verse you know. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord notice to the glory of God the Father. It all is going to work out to this point that everything will acknowledge you are Lord. You are worthy. And God's going to go, yes, that's exactly what I want to see. Everything's going to elevate and glorify the Son. Our suffering, our blessing, good, what we call good and bad, everything, earthquakes, all that stuff. And lastly, Colossians 1, where it says it again. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, speaking of Christ, the firstborn from the dead, notice, so that he might come to have first place in everything, for God was pleased to have all the fullness, all his fullness dwell in him. God has determined my son will be first in everything. First place in everything. And said so God was pleased to do that, that all his fullness would dwell in Christ. And God the Father's driving force, if you want, is to elevate the son. To glorify himself by elevating his son. And the whole world is going to see how great his son is. And everything that happens. Creation itself happened. Because God decided, I'm going to glorify my son by creating a universe that one day is going to fall at his feet and worship him. That's what it's all about. I don't know all the details, but I know that's going on. This is where John Piper excels. People argue some things he says, but John Piper's right in this. that you've, Your sole happiness is to be found in Christ. Once you have that, nothing else really matters. That's, that's true happiness, eternal happiness. Then come what may. If you, if you get that right, everything else fits. Like, like Barry just isn't it true? Like really, I don't, I don't believe God can use anyone unless he breaks you first. Isn't that true? Like a horse has to be broken before you can ride it. Otherwise, it's wild. God, if you're not broken, God can't use you. And he can, you only get broken through suffering, through calamity, through hard times. Father, we thank you for the privilege of seeing our Savior in action through the scriptures. And Lord, this precious word to us today, we thank you that our Savior has clearly pointed out to us that you are sovereign in everything that happens, even, Lord, the calamities and the sufferings and the sicknesses that come our way and the natural disasters. Lord, you're behind it all. You're orchestrating it all, Lord. We don't understand. And many times, Lord, it hurts. It stings. But, oh, Lord, we know we need it. And we know that you are good and you, you know what you're doing. And we know that you are on the path to glorify your Son in all things. So, Father, may it be. And, Lord, if that glorification means we need to struggle, we need to suffer, then, Lord, may it be. We know the day is coming. Because of Christ, that all suffering and struggling is going to end. Lord, how we'll, we'll rejoice in that day. But till then, Lord, help us to understand that just as this man was born blind for the glory of God, Lord, may our lives, may our struggles, may our sufferings teach us to glorify God. May our lives be an example of how great it is to be a Christian, or even in hard times and suffering and sickness. Lord, may your light shine through us to the world to proclaim how great the Savior is. And again, Lord, you can do as you will because you are God. Help us, Lord, to bow before you, to kiss the hand, to kiss the rod, to do whatever is needed, Lord, that serve you. And Lord, just calm us down. Give us peace. Help us to believe this. Expand our faith, Lord, that we can understand what Jesus said here and what's, what this truth is all about. Again, we're glad you're in control, Lord, because you do everything right. You have promised us that nothing will ever come into our lives that's going to take us out, that all things are somehow working together for our good, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would have it no other way. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. Help us to believe this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.